1: Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Caleb
2: Zacharin, the assistant editor of the New Books Network, and you're listening to New Books in Political Science. Today I'm speaking with Zeynep Pamuk about her new book, Politics and Expertise, How to Use Science in a Democratic Society, from Princeton University Press. Zeynep is an assistant professor of political science at the University of California, San Diego. Her work exists at the intersection between political theory and the philosophy of science. There are few thinkers today thinking about the relationship between science and democracy in a manner as nuanced and thorough as Zeynep. Her new book is a much needed intervention in the fiery ongoing debates surrounding the politics of both COVID-19 and climate change. Zeynep, thank you for joining me today on the New Books Network.
3: Thank you for having me.
2: So first question I'd like to ask is what is your background and what inspired you to write this book?
3: i'm originally from istanbul turkey i did my undergrad at yale so i came to the us at the age of 18 i did my undergrad and then i went to harvard for graduate school and uh, did my phd in government and then i went to oxford for a postdoctoral fellowship uh, at saint john's college and then i started my current job at the university of california san diego uh, in the political science department Uh, So my interest in these issues started as an undergrad. I was interested or concerned in climate change and um, environmental problems more broadly. So I um, designed a concentration for myself on environmental politics. I was interested in conflicts over rivers, on um, climate change mitigation measures. Um, I was interested in environmental architecture, on green um, economics. So these kinds of issues um i wanted to explore more and these motivated me to um apply for phd in political science but when i got to grad school as i was looking more into into the literature on um, climate change i realized that there was a lot of work especially in moral and political philosophy on different ways to deal with um climate change whose responsibility it was to take on um Mitigation burdens, who owed what to future generations? I, I thought there was incredibly important and valuable work on these topics, but there was so little political uptake. At that point, we were reaching; um, we had already reached a stalemate. The issue didn't seem to be going anywhere, even as we were seeing the scientific predictions come um, true. We were watching them being realized, and and there was no political action. So I started thinking that the that we needed more. Um, academic study of the the reasons why science became so um so contested in the political sphere why issues on which it looked like there were accurate scientific predictions good studies didn't get the uptake in the political sphere that that seemed to be needed so i became more interested in this as a political issue and i um, thought at least in political science there wasn't Uh, that much study of the intersection of science and politics, so I thought this is how I will study these issues.
2: You discuss a lot of the history of this kind of thinking of the relationship between science and politics. Broadly speaking, what are the the common or typical frameworks that we have for understanding the relationships between politics and science?
3: So the question of expertise and its relationship Uh, to politics goes back to the the ancient Greeks. Plato um, problematized this issue. He um, argued that democracies would not recognize expertise, and he himself developed an argument for for philosopher kings. So it was a form of expert rule. The expertise in question there, though, was not the kind of technical expertise that we associate with scientists uh, today. Um, so that's more of a kind of um, means to an end, kind of instrumental expertise, whereas um, in Plato's case, the expertise in question was about um, the good life, how best we should live. And he argued that philosophers possess this expertise and that's why they should be given the authority to rule. So this, this approach to expertise, I think, is um, ha- has been... Uh, the more common one, the uh, thinking, asking the question of whether democracies will will possess this kind of knowledge about the good and whether um, those who possess this knowledge should rule. So we can think of the question as having these two different components. Um, but I think in questions around scientific expertise um, and the kind of expertise that became um, more prominent with the, with the rise of modern science, the claim that this will also give us answers to questions about how to live um, has receded. So scientists do not make this claim. In fact, they make the opposite claim. Um, And it's interesting to think about the the historical reasons why this came to be, that scientists um, started making a claim to neutrality, to not making any judgments about how we should live, just pointing out uh, answers to the question of how things are. Um, there, there's interesting work, uh, more historical work on this question, um, and some answers are more about the, the pressures that scientists faced um, in trying to defend what they were doing from political pressures, um, in trying to uh, to respond to claims that they were Posing a threat to religion, for example, this has always been um, a tension the tension between science and religion, just as much as science and politics. And I think the neutrality claim was a, a form of defense uh, for science and allowed scientists to, to get on with what they were doing without necessarily um, threatening these other spheres. Of course, it's this is a—it's um, it, inevitable that these spheres come into conflict, and neutrality is is not only. Um, strictly speaking impossible and false and we know that science isn't purely neutral um, but also it, it didn't really persuade either so scientists have always been accused of having um, designs about what we ought to do and and that their claims always come with a political agenda so this has been the tension historically and we see um this, that various episodes um whether it's about the teaching of evolution, um, whether it's about the atomic bomb, and then there's climate change, vaccines, you name it. So again and again, these kinds of tensions um, crop up. And it's always about the the relationship between um, the ends that, that scientists may presuppose or um, scientific knowledge may seem to, um, to push towards. And then the, the more political, um, in our case, more democratic ends um, that others might have.
2: A uh, scholar that you repeatedly bring up, mostly in the context of criticism, is Max Weber. And you talk about how Max Weber's notion of science uh, and the scientist's role in politics has very much defined our understanding. What was Weber's conception and what is your issue with this framework?
3: So Weber argued um, for a strict separation between... um, facts and values he thought so he was writing about this in the context of bureaucrats so not strictly natural scientists but more um uh, in the context of bureaucracy and he argued that bureaucrats should aim for uh, aim to be objective um, do neutral assessments and stay out of the value business so i'm, I'm not suggesting that vapor didn't realize how difficult this would be. In fact, he was motivated by the observation that bureaucrats would always bring in their own personal commitments, their attachments um, into the business of of doing objective calculations that would facilitate a kind of more technical, um, rational form of government or management. The problem is that this kind of um, objective calculation, he assumed would be possible he focused on a more certain kind of knowledge so the the iron cage that he wrote about um, presupposes the idea that the bureaucrats who make this kind of calculation that um, depoliticize the world that objectify um, social and political affairs or calculate human actions would be possible and that this would squeeze out the room for agency for human judgment for politics for leadership um, and so on but in reality when we look at the calculations themselves the kind of um, actual work required in um, in managing the world and predicting human affairs we see that actually it's it's extremely difficult it's impossibly um, complicated and it's it's got it's um, governed by uncertainty through and through Um, So when we look at the practice of science, of um, technical calculation related to human affairs, um, the kind of of objective uh, calculation, the strict separation of facts and values looks impossible. So you could say that Weber argued for um, approaching an ideal that was maybe impossible, but that we could approximate fairly well or that we should aim to approximate. And I think that's um, that's a good reading of what he was doing. That he set this out as as a as some as guidance for bureaucrats. This is what you should aim to do: keep out your values, um, just seek objective knowledge. But if you can't attain the ideal and it's um, in its best form, sometimes trying to approximate it um, is not the best way to to go about trying to achieve it. Because if we know that um, the the technical experts who are doing these calculations will bring their own values, will bring their own worldviews under uncertainty. They will make certain trade-offs. They will make um, value-laden assessments of risk. If we know that they're going to do this, saying, oh, you should try not to do it may not be adequate. We might need a different approach altogether. Um, And that's what I try to do in my book. So I I kind of um, set my approach uh, in contrast to to a, view that says oh just try as much as possible to separate the facts and values um even if it's impossible this is what you this is what experts should always aim to do Um, and i say because we know that's not possible we should have a different approach altogether and that's how i um, frame the argument
2: this lack of separation between you know fact finding and values uh obviously has political implications uh what are some of like the immediate political implications that we see, especially when it comes to scientists acting in a political advisory role and the challenges with being honest about the uncertainty or the value-laden aspects of science.
3: So one neat thing about the fact-value distinction and any division of labor between experts and non-experts that is rooted in it is that it makes very clear um, what the role of the experts is, and it essentially... Um, puts clear boundaries around it. So if if experts are just telling us how things are, um, and if that's the way things are, then we don't have to worry about um, their influence in the political sphere. They don't have additional um, input in the democratic process. Um, They are not taking on the the judgment or usurping any kind of political authority or role. But once we discard this as unrealistic, as unattainable, perhaps even undesirable, then the problem is that any judgment, any advice, um, any scientific recommendation that comes from an expert is also going to have um, embedded within it, judgments about um, what to do, what's the best political response. Um, And this will be within the, the part that appears to be technical. So this is the concern. It would be one thing if scientists said, if, if it were possible for scientists to say this is um, our scientific um, observation or finding, and then based on this, um, we think we ought to do this. So this model, which people still again and again, like during the COVID crisis, people think this is what scientists should do and they shouldn't make recommendations about what we ought to do. Well, that's all very well. But actually, in the way the science has been conducted, there already are these kinds of judgments there um, they've made judgments about what part of the problem to study, um, which kinds of variables they can accept as more um, uncertain or more um, approximate, and which ones they want to get fully right, um, which variables to include in the first place, how to define their concepts, where to set thresholds of um, certainty, how much evidence they accept as sufficient to reach a certain conclusion, all of these are within the scientific process, and they involve judgments about uh, about what's important, what's significant, what's relevant, what's politically useful. Um, and this kind of knowledge then incorporates judgments about um, about political affairs, but it arrives in the, the guise of, of the way things are, of, of scientific knowledge. And this is the problem that... Um, expertise poses in a democracy, that the, the expertise we get already incorporates judgments about, about, the, about its own significance and the purposes that can be pursued with it. Uh, and that limits what we can do. And it also gives experts more say, more of a, um, of a right to shape what we should do um, than other citizens or representatives, um, policymakers, and so on.
2: In the book, you discuss what you refer to as the paradox of scientific advice. What is the, the paradox of scientific advice?
3: So scientific advisors, when they come to the um, the policy sphere, they're expected to give advice that is neutral. So do not take political sides and do not make recommendations about what we ought to do, which policy we ought to adopt based on the science. Um, but at the same time, their main task is to give advice that's useful for policy purposes. And usefulness already incorporates um, conceptions of, of what's, what's, what interests we should take into account, what we might want to do. The paradox is that the more you or scientific advisors try to give useful advice that anticipates whose interests we might be speaking to, or what kinds of policies we may pursue, the more they move away from neutrality. But if they really stick to the the task of staying neutral, then they resort to uh, technicalities that are really irrelevant. Um, They they refrain from thinking about what others may want to do with the knowledge that they're presenting. And that creates a, a gap between the knowledge and the context in which it's going to be used. Um, So to give useful advice, you have to be less neutral. You have to think of who's receiving your advice. Um, I mean, if you think of a a one-on-one relationship, say, with a financial advisor, a good financial advisor will take into account their client's um, preferences, needs, risk aversion, life plans, all of these things. Um, But scientists are told not to take into account any of this. So they're pushed towards giving purely technical advice, um, and then they become less useful. If they become useful or try to be useful, then they're no longer neutral. And then they're accused of being partisan, um, of having their own agenda. So it's an impossible task that's presented to them. And this is what I call the the paradox of scientific advice.
2: If we want to put your ideas into practice, it would be best off if we start to accept the fact that scientists aren't necessarily engaged in pointing to what what truth is, uh, and at the same time that scientists are informed by pressure to try and be apolitical or non-political. So uh, something that you that you make a proposal for is you say that we need a science court. And this isn't uh, your idea. You didn't invent this idea. This is actually has a political origin. So What is the history of this idea of a science court and what would a science court look like that would help uh, to mediate this problem of the paradox of science, scientific advice?
3: So I stumbled upon this idea as I was reading on some science policy debates uh, from the sixties and seventies for obvious reasons. That was a period when, um, science policy was really, um, More in the the forefront of political debates, there was a closer relationship between um, presidents and scientific advisors. Um, Scientists were sometimes called the fifth estate, so they had much more direct political power. Um, But the the same sorts of issues that we see in the use of science in politics today, um, problems with scientific disagreement, uncertainty, scientists being accused of not being neutral, of um, of some scientists confusing the public or trying to um, get their own agenda through. These issues happen regularly and they happened at like a, uh, perhaps in a more um, serious scale and a more, um, well, now with the pandemic, these things have again become very very critical, very public. Um, And and back then it was about um, the atomic bomb, but there were various issues and scientists um were accused of being political, of, of distorting the truth. So, uh, an engineer and policymaker called Arthur Kantrovitz um, decided or off- suggested, based on exactly these complaints about um, the handling of science in the public sphere, um, that we should institute a science court in which scientists with different views would make their case, and there'd be a panel of scientist judges. And they would settle the disagreement. So they would rule in favor of one or the other, or maybe they would say um, they'd pick some um, in-between position, um, and they would settle the debate for policy purposes. So it wasn't meant to end scientific controversy. So it wasn't a court um, that ended um, that that could be used for peer-review purposes, but it was designed to settle scientific issues for public affairs so I, I thought this was a this was a very interesting idea, and it was also wildly popular. Um, twenty eight different scientific um, organizations endorsed it. Um, President um, Ford and um, Jimmy Carter was running against, and they both endorsed it. Um, and this was they they set out to have a trial of the court. so it was there was a there was big uptake, and it was very much in in the news and it it seemed to be a, a popular idea. The problem that I saw with the court was that it had a clear technocratic bent. So it was designed to give a scientific answer, and these experts were called in to resolve a dispute between experts. So there was not much role for ordinary citizens, there was not much role for um political judgments or considering the the political implications so to be clear it was based on a fact value separation the scientist would settle the science and then that science would be fed into the policy making process and i thought this this just built on a on a on an epistemology that i had already i had criticized Um, but I thought the idea itself, if sufficiently reworked, could be very well, valuable. So I set out to do that. So I reimagined the court. Um, I said, um, first of all, let's not have a separation of facts and values. Let's have a, have an issue with the scientific component, whether it's about which climate change mitigation policy to adopt or um, whether it's a choice between adaptation or mitigation, whether it's a um, decision about... Uh, lockdowns or vaccine mandates, mask mandates, something uh, with a policy component and a scientific component. And I also suggested replacing the expert judges with citizen jurors. Um, so I was drawing on a literature in, um, in democratic theory that argued for these small-scale um, institutions, but they had very different features. They were mostly deliberative um, and experts were brought in to inform discussion, but they were, again, uh, essentially providing information um, that citizens could then use to deliberate, whereas I wanted the action to be about um, the dispute between the scientists. So disagreeing scientists would make their case, and the citizen jurors would listen to them, ask questions. Scientists would cross-examine one another, like in a jury trial, and then the citizens would deliberate about the policy and come up with a recommendation.
2: What would you say that's that that your notion of a science court basically flips the original notion on its head, where yours is about underlining the fact that there is dissent and there is dispute in the scientific community and creating more transparency around this, as opposed to trying to establish truth or fact, which is what this original court would have done. That, would you say that's accurate?
3: Yes, I really like how you put it. That is entirely accurate. Um, and in a way, that changes both the purpose of the court and also how we think about um, the way scientific issues are politicized generally. So um, I think there has always been this, um, this desire for or push toward arriving at a consensus. And that's, that's I think, I mean, now I'm maybe speculating a bit, but that's probably motivated by the idea that there's one truth that um, if there are many different views, someone must be wrong, misguided, or pushing a political agenda or something. Um, And there's always been this pressure for scientists themselves to reach an agreement among themselves to have one consensus view, even if they can't say this is the truth that at least they should make their best effort to come up with one scientific position that can then be presented as our best science now. Um, and, of course, the original science court was designed to to get experts to reach that kind of settlement, to, um, to rule on what we could take as true for now. I thought that was just based on on a bad view of science. I think um, in the vast majority of cases where science become politicized, there actually are a range of scientific views which enjoy some degree of support. There's usually um, quite a bit of uncertainty um or you could just say that the science court or these kinds of this kind of approach works best for science in which there is disagreement so if if an issue has been settled um if there's a vast consensus around it um for example as as there is around the the fact that climate change is happening then maybe that's not the the kind of issue you take up in a court um but on on the on the, the majority of issues that surround this kind of claim that's settled um, there isn't a similar consensus and science is, is, scientists are trying to figure out and there are lots of different views um, floating around. So my idea was to, to examine their assumptions, to see what implications they had, and then to um, to allow citizens to weigh the risks, the trade-offs um, after understanding how um, how uncertain the science was. And as you said, to, to be transparent about it, to be clear about the limits of science. Um, and I thought the... Reaching such clarity would also allow um, citizens to see the points on which there was agreement, what seemed to be settled science. So it would give us a sense of the scope of the disagreement, um, the bounds of what was scientifically um, feasible or what appeared to be plausible and, and what seemed to be completely open, um, and then make decisions based on acknowledgment of uncertainty and disagreement rather than trying to settle on, on one truth um, which just didn't exist at that time, so that that was the aim.
2: And another aspect uh, of science and politics that you discuss in the book is the the whole process of of funding for research, uh, and you talk about some of the early history in the U.S. of scientific funding occurring uh, during World War II and and really starting up after. And you you discuss um, Vannevar Bush and FDR and their conceptions of scientific research as well as michael polani what were their ideas around scientific research funding and how have these ideas sort of influenced the present day funding
3: so the reason why i wanted to study funding and direct attention to towards science funding was the view that the science we have the kind of the kind of questions that are explored can be traced back to much earlier decisions about which projects should get funding. Um, Science today is a very expensive enterprise. Um, It requires millions, billions of dollars, um, and it's not possible to have science that doesn't um, enjoy some kind of um, funding support. So this means that the, the way scientific issues shape public debate is usually influenced in a way that that perhaps is difficult to to trace immediately, but in some way by decisions made much earlier um, around the distribution of grants. Now, this didn't used to be the case, and I was interested in how and when science became uh, a funding dependent enterprise, how it expanded, and that brought me to these debates ar- um, right after World War II. So before that, science was more of a um, was more of an individual enterprise. It was pursued by people who had some means themselves, or, or maybe they were geniuses, or they had some institutional or university support. Um, science, of course, there were brilliant scientists then, but we didn't have the kind of um, big science, the uh, funding-dependent science, until after World War II. So this was um, due to the success of scientists uh, in winning the war and the public perception that it was scientists who had contributed greatly to the Um, the war effort and the the success science policy, uh, people wanted to capitalize on this and get more funds from the federal government to make science um, as it was during the war effort continue. But of course they had to come up with a rationale because the, um, in in wartime, it's clear what you're paying scientists for. Um, They had to devise a rationale um, that would suit um, ordinary affairs. So, uh, Vannevar Bush, um, who was a was a science policy advisor to FDR, uh, developed this justification of why of what science could do for Americans, and it was it was entirely about um, material progress, about economic growth, about um, solving various economic and um, social problems. Um, and putting this vision of, of a science-dependent, technologically-fueled growth for many decades to come. Now, in some ways, I, I think many people would find that vision appealing, attractive, but it was an entirely top-down vision, and it didn't have any room for um, political concerns, for issues that different citizens might prioritize. So it was a kind of economically-driven Uh, worldview, and it was purely elitist. So it didn't have any input whatsoever. It wasn't debated in Congress much, but it was a a massive funding effort. Um, And the idea was, so the key point of his argument was that all of these benefits that he listed, benefits that people may well want, would come about if scientists were given complete autonomy over the distribution of funds. And this it was a wild claim to make because it was an untested one. There was no prior experience with this level of funding given to um, any any community, any community of professionals. So scientists would have this unique position of having full autonomy over the distribution of public funds. And the claim was that this is how the public would most be benefited. He didn't really have any. Any evidence to show for this, but he drew heavily on Michael Polanyi's writing, and Polanyi argued that um, the way science progressed was that each scientist um, would build on the work of other scientists, and only the expert in that area would know best what the next step should be. So he basically argued that science could not be guided toward any end. So this was the opponent here was a a kind of social planning view um, that, for example, would um, put forward particular social problems and have scientists um, design more, quote unquote, applied uh, solutions to problems or um, respond more directly to issues that citizens would want solved. Um, This view was opposed to that, was suggesting that that's not how science works. That's not how you get scientific progress. Scientists have to be given complete free reign to pursue their curiosity. And Polanyi, in turn, drew on economic metaphors. He, um, he was friends with Hayek, and um, Hayek, I think, was influenced by uh, Polanyi, Polanyi's view about this invisible hand mechanism of, of free pursuit of curiosity leading to the greatest discovery. But, of course, these were unsupported. And the idea that science moves um, in this way towards some some vision of the truth, um, there was no reason to think that. And actually, um, someone like Thomas Kuhn was arguing precisely that this is not how science works, that this kind of incremental progress toward the truth um, painted a a false picture of scientific progress. Um, But this was the vision that behind the the science funding protocol that the U.S. adopted, and this this vision proved surprisingly lasting. Um, So even if today we wouldn't justify um, the kind of funding distribution systems we have, going back to the the same arguments, perhaps the the system put in place has had um, lasting impact and it hasn't been changed that dramatically.
1: slash nbn50 to get 50% off.
2: So you discuss with regarding scientific research, the fact that it shouldn't just be the scientists who are involved in the science itself that should decide where the money comes from, that there are other stakeholders should be involved in this. Um, what is your idea about who should get a say and who should be involved in this discussion?
3: So there are different levels um, to the question, um, at the, the general priority setting level, I think the decision making really should be quite democratic, um, that this should be, um, determined with congressional input with perhaps citizens, um, citizen juries having a say over how, which issue areas to prioritize, um, and to some degree shaping the, the, the direction of, of scientific growth, um, because this has direct impact on the kinds of um, social change that we will see over decades, and also on the kinds of policies that become possible to pursue based on scientific knowledge. Now, I don't go so far as to say that the distribution of, scientific, uh, of funds among scientific projects per se would, would best be done um, with direct input from policymakers or citizens, because at that stage, the, the proposals are very complex and do require, um, uh, and, and I don't think that citizens have the kind of expertise to be able to differentiate um, and distribute funds. But I do, as you were describing, I do argue that um, giving specialists free reign over distribution of funds is going to create its own pathologies, that it's going, it's, it creates people with a stake in certain paradigms, to use Kuhnian language once again, that these people have an interest in seeing their own um, issue area funded and have and it's having um, a prominent public role. So I think that also creates problems. And um, there's also some increasing uh, empirical research on how grant distribution um, is flawed, that it has biases, it's biased against um, women and um, minorities, that it doesn't necessarily pick out the most significant discoveries. So the idea that relying on specialists is going to bring about the most significant um, scientific discoveries, um, even decades later, we still don't have evidence that this is true. In fact, there's some evidence that it, is, it doesn't work that way. So I propose um, something a bit experimental. I say, why don't we use lotteries or randomization um, to distribute at least some portion of funds um, because this would allow a truly um, diverse group of um, projects to get funding. It would um, increase the the funding and support given to projects that are um, more idiosyncratic, more different, perhaps um, those who Bring uh, a dissenting perspective. If if they go against the mainstream, they're more likely to get funds under a regime that prior that that is completely random than one that um, that is controlled by precisely those people who um, work under the the mainstream view. So I think randomization um, could have important benefits. So that's the second um, thing I I argue for. Uh, a third is about the role of democratic decision-making in withdrawing funding from certain areas of science um, that are that is highly dangerous and also highly uncertain um, in its results and there i look at um, the kind of scientific research that is um, likely to lead to high-risk technologies so um, lethal autonomous weapons, sometimes called killer robots is one example. Um, Geoengineering or certain forms of um, sulfate aerosol injection, that's another um, example. These are cases where the the impacts are going to be severe, they're going to be planetary, um, and yet scientists still have more or less the same sorts of um, grant distribution processes with some attention to safety, but this goes way beyond safety. It's, it's about what kind of world we want to live in. Um, and these areas of research have transformative potential. Some might say in some cases good, but um, in many cases really bad. And this kind of decision, um, I argue, should not be left to scientists alone.
2: So for some of these uh, potentially dangerous technologies, uh, where we don't necessarily know what the impacts will be, like with artificial intelligence, for example, one of the arguments that I hear is that even if there is a risk associated with with researching artificial intelligence, because China and other potential U.S. competitors are doing this research, it's incumbent on us to do this research. Do you think that you know, I you know, in the ideal system, even you know there would be some world democratic decision about how scientific research happens or you know in this particular regime that we have ongoing you know is there s- still some necessity for this type of potentially dangerous research
3: i i see that that line of reasoning definitely so um i don't envision of world government anytime soon so that's not a possibility that i i focus on very much um but I think it's important to think about what other countries are doing especially since scientific research is is now um a global enterprise and there's a lot of both competition and collaboration and the global aspect is only going to become more important um with with chinese scientists really doing um a lot of the heavily funded research now so i think that consideration is important so i would i would take it on an issue by issue basis so what happens if the us stops funding this kind of science. I think um, in many cases, if U.S. scientists stop funding uh, a certain area or if they they stop pursuing that, it becomes um, the incentives for other countries to to pursue it or scientists to pursue it um, diminish because science works through collaboration and U.S. labs are um, the leaders still in many areas. And scientists do not find it advantageous to to work in an area where some countries have pulled out completely. That may not be true of also weapons development may not have that structure. And I think that is an area where some kind of international treaty or agreement um, is probably necessary because there it would seem that the advantages of um, developing one when your um, competitors are not um, are, are large, um, whereas in other kinds of issues, I think if if one group of citizens in the in a Major funder like the U.S. withdraw, then others lose the incentive to pursue it, and in some cases, just one country saying on principle um, we're not going to do this um, that can have an important that can give an important message. It carries important weight. Um, perhaps in some kinds of um, genetic um, editing, hereditary gene engineering, um, that might be the the crucial move. So there, it, it seems like that that moral. Um, message is significant and should be given regardless of whether in that area another country um, g- garner some advantage by pursuing research. But in a lot of cases, so if I, I touch upon this question of um, gain of function research, which became um, highly political during the COVID nineteen pandemic because of the possibility of a of a lab leak, and there the. The lab that became that was at the center of the controversy, the Wuhan uh, Virology Institute, um, was funded by both American and Chinese funders. So um, actually, NIH funding was going directly to Wuhan, um, and American scientists were collaborating. So that was clearly a case where if the, the US funders um, had said this is we are no longer funding this kind of research, which they had actually back in 2014. They put a moratorium on this research. Um, perhaps we wouldn't be having um, the the highly charged political um, debates, controversies around whether the COVID nineteen pandemic could have had a lab origin. So while I certainly recognize the international component and that should become part of our assessment, um, it doesn't um, fully eliminate the the effectiveness or the need for some democratic countries to step up and um, say they're against certain kinds of science.
2: Yeah, I find that, that argument actually really compelling. Uh, another thing I wanted to ask you about um, in relation to scientific funding is with when it comes to private funding. Uh, obviously, private funding has become like a major a uh, major source of scientific innovation. I think we, we see this a lot with like in Silicon Valley and with big tech companies. Um, how how does uh, y- your sort of understanding of democracy's role in science apply to private sources?
3: So the rise of private funding and its, um, its increasing importance vis-a-vis public funding gives me great concern because um i argue in the book that funding for science is a huge power um, and that power has been wielded by um by the government by by the public indirectly for many decades but now it's it's increasingly in private hands um through philanthropy through um privately funded scientific research so that that creates many problems so in at the very basic level, it, it means that the kinds of interest, the kinds of um, concerns driving uh, scientific research become those become those of um, the funders, the, the private individuals who are giving the money. So they can determine which issues, which illness, or which uh, they can determine which issues should get priority, which problems um deserve a more urgent solution um, which diseases are more important Um, and there we can see the the effects in um in the the prioritization of issues that are experienced more by um by the wealthy or by the preferences of the wealthy so that's that's one concern Uh, another concern is that privately funded science does not have to um be as as public it does it need not share um, data or um, knowledge in the same way sometimes. Well, um, there are different different modes. In, in some cases, philanthropists will just fund scientists. In other cases, there is a, a profit motive as well. Um, so if, if research is done in private labs, then it, it will not be disseminated in the same way. It will not become public knowledge. It will not be used for other um, public projects. And that also is, that would change the character of science greatly. And I think um to the detriment of of the citizenry, so these are concerns, and I think um, what we need of course, what we need to do is to um, to use the power of public funding as a way to counterbalance the increase of private funding. The U.S. government is expanding scientific funds, um, doubling the budget of NSF NIH greatly, and this kind of push hasn't been done in. Many decades, I think. Um, this is largely to compete with China, but of course, it will have um, ramifications for the the kind of science that's possible. And I think this is an opportunity. This is um, whatever you think of the the appropriate level of scientific funding. That there is public funding for science. That taxpayer funding is directed in this way um, creates the power to to use this for um, as a response to the um, the private uses of funds. So I see this as an opportunity and, um, the private, um, uh, activities of, of, philanthropists, Silicon Valley, um, moguls can be counterbalanced with this kind of push.
2: So just to sort of, you know, sum up many of the arguments that you're making in your, in your book, you know, for, for a relatively short book, you really do pack in a lot of in, interesting, uh, thoughts and ideas, what would your advice be to, you know, just the the average citizen who is not a scientist, uh, but wants to be able to engage in scientific questions? Like where where should the average citizen look to find scientific uh, evidence? And what should be the kind of basic approach about what scientific, you know, conclusions, what the value of scientific conclusions are?
3: I think one of the valuable things that has come out of the pandemic is the excellent science journalism that we have seen. Um, From mainstream newspapers to um, magazines and um, scientific publications, I've seen such great analyses, descriptions, um, commentary, reporting, investigative journalism around all facets of the the COVID-19 pandemic, from its distributive um implications to what's missing to the the scientific models used to what mistakes scientists were making, to how policymakers were uh, were making judgments that had certain um, flaws or that that prioritized some over others so i I got incredible information um, from science journalism and I think that is absolutely the place um, to go um, for an ordinary city, for a citizen who wants to. Um, follow the science to see what scientists are doing, what implications science has, and the the great thing about journalism is that it. Um, well, setting aside the the misinformation problem, I think you can see a spectrum of views and different um, perspectives are represented in the media. Um, media sphere in a way that you don't fully see within the scientific community so you get critiques of scientists that come from both the right and the left and the far right and the far left and I think that is healthy because um, academia is becoming more liberal in its composition Um, whether that affects the the kind of knowledge produced it seems inevitable that it will Um, I'm always interested in looking at evidence that it does and um, you know I'm I'm still looking. It's, it's hard to say with a, a disease or uh, whatnot, how, how it's shaping it. I think the jury is still out. But it's, it's great to have critiques about policy implications of science or policy advice given based on the um, science. Um, and this, this organizes debate and gives people a sense of, of how the science does and does not shape what we should do. Um, In addition to that, I mean, if if a science court were to be tried, I would say they should participate in it or watch it. Um, Debates between scientists when they're hosted on on TV shows, I think those are great opportunities to hear things from scientists themselves. Um, So we've seen a lot of scientists holding um, press conferences, um, although those had more of a a performative aspect and they weren't really discussing the science. So I, I thought that was an opportunity that wasn't necessarily used in the best way. Um, If they're really into the the nitty gritty, some scientific organizations host meetings or public conferences on YouTube. Um, So the the UK's Independent Scientific Advisory Group for Emergencies has a YouTube channel. They publish their minutes. They give interviews. Um, I really like the public facing aspect of their activities. So I think that's a great way to get information. And they also um, provide some critique and opposition to the, the government advisory group. So these have been tremendously valuable, and I uh, recommend them to, to everyone.
2: You end the book talking about the importance of recognizing the uncertainty inherent in scientific research, and uncertainty really is something that is, you know, a, a common theme that you that you come back to over and over again in the book. Uh, and you even talk about when COVID uh, was first first hitting the, the states, how there was this. Huge debate between scientists about you know that were basically dependent on different assumptions that went into into models, and that some scientists felt that there was a preference for uh, more extreme models of COVID prediction because of the the political implications. Um, You know, you don't make a case either what you know one way or the other of like which models are better. You just sort of say that it's important to understand that there is. This that there is a, a nuance when it comes to the uncertainty of models. So, how can you know the average citizen be prepared to to understand this this uncertainty and factor in uncertainty when it comes to science and not treating science as necessarily truth? You know, obviously, there's this phrase "trust the science." What, what's the issue with trust the science?
3: I think this is more about the institutions that relay. Science to the public, so it's not onto the science, the citizens to know the uncertainty of the science. It's onto institutions that that give advice, that publicize science, that um, that show its role in policymaking, or that organize um, public debates around it to be more attentive to the uncertainty, to bring it to the foreground, so that people know that know what's uncertain um, and what. Um, can be taken as, as, as more or less true. So my argument is, is entirely um, oriented toward making this kind of um, uncertainty public. So I suggest, for example, that advisory groups can um, have minority reports uh, or dissenting reports um, that, that argue for, for different positions that highlight what's uncertain. Um, I argue that, for, for a science court where uncertainty would be really at the forefront, disagreement would be emphasized. Um, I argue for transparency more generally. I think um, journalists covering uh, scientific disputes. Well, so this this has been a bit controversial maybe around the, the climate issue because of um, the attention given to a really small minority. And I think this has created, um, this has given people a really um, Bad taste, and people don't want this kind of two sides journalism. I think that's that's a shame. I think the problem there is is the the two sides being given equal weight. Um, I think it's important to give alternative perspectives. Um, the problem there was just giving the same minority perspective, which had been refuted or which had been argued against over and over again, um, and and giving it too much weight. But I think that shouldn't uh, make us shy away from um, emphasizing uncertainty where it exists and, um, you know, giving it proportionately, showing how many scientists think this and how many think that, That's certainly, uh, that sh- certainly should be done. False equivalence is not, is not good, but emphasizing uncertainty is necessary. So I think these kinds of institutions um, can and should do the work, and I think that would give citizens a better sense of what the uncertainty is uh, where it lies, and which models make which assumptions, and um, what the consequences are of those.
2: Since this book came out, has there been any interesting feedback you've received, or any opinions or or ideas that you expressed in the book that you have reevaluated?
3: Well, during the COVID pandemic, it was interesting for me to see the variety of of institutional responses. So. I was actually, in, in some ways, I was pleasantly surprised by the support um, around the view that it is good to to share and emphasize uncertainty and disagreement. Um, I think perhaps the climate experience had really uh, made the political sentiment turn against that approach, but the pandemic made it shift because I think it was clear that the science was uncertain and there were a lot of um, there's some flip-flopping on policy advice and people um, and, and and that didn't help that that made everyone mistrustful so it became clear that it's good and healthy um, to emphasize uncertainty and I, I actually got more um, more positive reactions to that view than I had um, before the pandemic while I was writing the book I think at that time people weren't that receptive to this view um, uh that uncertainty uh, in in science should be made very public. I think there was much more pushback before the pandemic and the pandemic changed it. Um, What have I revised? So the the lab leak experience was interesting because some of the the ideas I put forward, I argue that disagreement is important to emphasize, but I realized in the, the showdown between the Trump administration and scientists, that in some cases there are other political factors that really um, make scientists reluctant to to emphasize their weaknesses or to um, to admit their uncertainty, and I sympathize with that. I don't necessarily say it made me change my mind, but I, I could see why scientists who felt that the that the administration was anti science and had constantly tried to undermine them. Um, when when trump was the one who was pushing for the lab leak theory scientists sort of banded together and said no this this lab is doing great work and we're behind it i think they went too far but as a political move that was understandable so these issues are of course context dependent and there are other political goals that both scientists and um, politicians are pursuing which which always have to be factored in so um, in, in practice, the theory might have to be modified depending on the stakes. Um, so that's that's something that was very interesting to observe.
2: Well, thank you so much for being on the New, new Books Network, Zeynep. Uh, it's been great talking to you. Yeah, I think you, you offer a lot of interesting things here. Are you uh, working on anything new?
3: I think my next project is um, going to be about... Um, artificial intelligence and how ai technologies machine learning technologies are changing democracy the issues they create um, for accountability for fairness discrimination um, so moving from science to technology it's kind of a the natural step it's not the the same issue and i'm um, in some ways i'm much more concerned about ai um, even though I, I had a critical stance towards science Um, On some level, I I, I do believe science is is very important and and a force for good in many cases. AI, I guess some would say the same about AI, but just seeing how it's it's changing um, the world, I'm I'm much more worried at the moment. I'm getting into this topic, so exploring that um, is my next, next project.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think there's there's tons of justifiable worry there. That's definitely one of the things I'm most concerned about. So I really look forward to reading that book and hopefully having you on sometime in the future. So thank you so much.
3: Thank you very much, Caleb. This was a great conversation. Thank you for inviting me.